0: Okay, so we're talking about heresies, and this is not something that's just an ancient reality, something that happened hundreds or thousands of years ago, but it continues to be the case still today. Anybody remember this from uh, a few years ago, National Geographic started talking about the Gospel of Judas, right? And when does National Geographic or whomever always put these magazines out? Right around Easter, you can count on it, you know, you go to the grocery store, oh, yes. Suddenly we've found the lost version of Christ's betrayal, as the subtitle says. Or something even like the prayer of Jabez, okay, where it's a little bit more mainstream, more than nine million copies sold. The subtitle of that one was Breaking Through to the Blessed Life. And this one is not as obvious as the gospel of Judas, but it takes some truths of scripture and runs with it in a way that is contrary to the core doctrine that we profess. We're talking about somebody like T.D. Jakes, anybody ever heard of T.D. Jakes? He's a, a very popular kind of TV preacher, seven-time New York Times bestseller. T.D. Jakes doesn't believe in the Trinity. He, he does not profess in the divinity of Jesus. He's part of what's called oneness Pentecostalism. Okay? Now this is just out there all around us. Oh, I didn't even get into the Da Vinci Code. Now this is going back a little ways, but you remember the Da Vinci Code? Which professed to be a novel. It says it's a novel, but I can't tell you how many conversations I had, especially around like 2010 when this first came out, with people who took that as gospel. Right? They said this. This is telling us some historical truth, but it, it was espousing some ancient heresies. Ross Douthat, who's a, a columnist with the New York Times, and a couple of years ago wrote a book called Bad Religion. He says in the, this, America's problem isn't too much religion or too little of it. It's bad religion. The slow motion collapse of traditional Christianity and the rise of a variety of destructive pseudo-Christianities in its place. He says, for all its piety and fervor, today's United States needs to be recognized for what it really is. Not a Christian country, but a nation of heretics. Ooh. Ooh. He's not pulling any punches there. How would you... What, what, how does that strike you? Does that ring true with you? Or do you want to push back on him and say, wait a second, Ross, you're a little bit too tough there. When you look at our nation, have you thought of it that way before? Or What, what are your impressions just hearing those kind of bold, gauntlet-throwing words from Mr. Douthat? Right on, says Hans. Yeah? Anybody think that, have, want to push back on it a little bit? That's fair, too. But I see most of you kind of nodding your heads like, yeah. I mean, to the extent that there is religion in our country, um, so often it tends to kind of go off in all kinds of crazy ways. Part of that is the roots of our nation. We're a very entrepreneurial, you know, individualistic country where it's like, you know, anything kind of goes. Let a thousand flowers bloom. There's a lot of good stuff about that. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to faith, it can create problems along the way. Yep.
1: Yeah, but- Yeah, always it always goes back to theology of cross, theology of glory. Yeah, and most of the faith in our country is
0: devoid of of the real cross. Yeah, so Bob brings up um, a distinction we uh, shared in a sermon a few weeks ago between theology of glory and theology of the cross. That theology of glory, especially of of human glory, is always looking for ways to exalt the human person which ways we can get around the cross of Jesus and ensure that God is basically like, well, as uh, one sociologist put it, he's kind of our butler in the sky, right? He's the guy that we can call on when we need something, but otherwise he's not going to be too involved with our lives. Of course, this is not the God who's revealed to us in the scriptures, in the person of his son, Jesus, but it's a very common kind of, of viewpoint. We're going to talk about this because uh, this idea of heresies, because I want to convey to you all this is not just something from a long time ago. This is not going to be merely a history Bible study, right? This is a, a living, uh, breathing threat to the faith still today. These heresies are perennial, they come up from age to age, and they're seductive in many respects. There's ways in which there's things about the heresies that, as we'll see, we're like, Ooh, I might be drawn to that, or I can see why that would be popular or or alluring. Because as I said in a a sermon recently, when the devil shows up, you remember this? He masquerades as an angel of light, right? He doesn't look manifestly evil. He doesn't look obviously contrary. But instead, he says, hey there, let me show you this half-truth, which for just that reason is even more destructive and dangerous. But to begin with today, um, as we're getting going, (laughs) it's mean here. So why does this matter? You know, I want to. You might say, well, this tastes like a combination of who cares and so what. So we're we're going to show why this really matters. Why it matters that we are orthodox, to use the traditional term. So let's start with defining some terms. First of all, orthodoxy. Now, there, I should say that orthodoxy is used to describe a particular branch of Christianity. So, capital O, orthodox, describes um, the Eastern Church, really. Um, and you'll hear Eastern Orthodox, but you might also hear Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox. They all fall under, all those different um, geographical modifiers fall under one big head of the, the Eastern Church, which goes by orthodoxy. So, now what we're talking about here. We're talking about, if you will, lowercase o, orthodoxy orthodoxy that applies to Christians from age to age and from place to place. So what's orthodoxy? To give you just a kind of technical term, orthodoxy is conforming to the Christian faith as confessed in the creeds of the church Catholic. And here we're using Catholic, I mentioned this in the video too. Not, again, capital C Catholic as in Roman Catholic, but Catholic in the, its root sense of meaning universal. Kat is the, the Greek word, which means according to the whole. So when we talk about the church Catholic, we mean the church from age to age, right? And from place to place, comprising uh, believers from, from every nation and tribe, etc. So orthodoxy is basically Christians wherever they are, uh, professing the faith as it is handed down to us in the creeds. That's kind of the technical definition of orthodoxy. Stanley Hauerwass says, that orthodoxy, and that's the picture of this dude here, orthodoxy is the hard discipline of learning to say what needs to be said and no more. <laughs> learning to say, what, to say what needs to be said and no more. Okay. And uh, there's two characteristics of it that I want to make mention for you in particular. One, orthodoxy is going to embrace paradox and mystery. Why is that important? Why is it important that that orthodoxy is able to live with that kind of paradox of saying two things that in some ways seem to be counter, but to hold them both at the same time? Why is it important for for orthodoxy to to dwell in mystery at times, too? What difference does that make? Yeah, Jana.
1: Because the word orthodox um, means something that is stern. I mean, that's the the outlook that you have of that word. Mm -hmm. But embracing paradox and mystery gives it leeway yeah. and encourages us to look at things in a different way and sure. explore the mysteries of
0: faith. Yeah, well, and this, this is its own kind of paradox to it. That orthodox, like you say, that can ha- perhaps conjure a sense of, of rigidness. You know, this has to be this way. But in fact, it's just the opposite. What orthodoxy does and professing this, this faith that we have, it liberates us to follow God's truth where it leads us without preconceived notions about what can be and what can't be, right? If we're going to follow the, the truths of Scripture, sometimes it's going to lead us to some places that seem totally counterintuitive and contrary to normal human logic. In fact, you know, if we think that, um, you know, if everything that we believe was just perfectly logical and any human being across time could have just figured it out, even apart from the Scriptures, that's a surefire sign that you're a heretic. <laughs> like, the truths of God, of course, are going to run contrary. My ways are not your ways, God says. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Like, if everything we believe, we're like, okay, God's thoughts are my thoughts. We're on the same page with all this, God. We're making a God in our image, right? That's, that's a, a real problematic thing. So that's the first uh, feature of orthodoxy. Perhaps itself, paradoxically, it embraces paradox and mystery, Then secondly, it sees the whole of God's truth. sees the whole of God's truth. And this touches on what what Bob shared, which is that it's so easy to just grab bits and pieces. Um, I say, and I'm pointing at myself as much as anybody else, as Christians, we love the highlighter, right? Here's here's the things I'm going going to highlight. Here's the parts that I think are, are really important or applicable. These other things about forgiving everybody. Well, I mean, we'll just not highlight that part, right? Uh, Orthodoxy is going to see the whole of God's truth, the whole council of God, is how the Christians have traditionally phrased that. And so one way to think about it, or to envision it, and I love baseball, and so this is kind of how I picture it, is what the creeds do is that the creeds kind of form those boundaries within, uh, within which there's proper confession of faith. But how far do the, the fair lines or the foul lines go? How far do those, do those uh, for, you know, if you're a baseball fan or even if you're not, how long do the, the, the lines go? Infinity. Infinity, right? And it just it goes on and on. Within those, bound, within those lines, there is so much there to explore, to understand. Within God's truth and with what it means to be orthodox, we have these, these boundary markers. But within those boundary markers, there is so much vastness to explore within the identity of God, within his truth as he has handed it down to us. It's not a straightjacket, see. It's not a, a constriction. It's more like, well, it's more like the reason why as parents we want to have fences for our kids. Is that so that they can't ever, you know, explore or go, it's to keep them safe. And then within that yard, you're able to fully enjoy it all the way up to the, up the edges, right? Able to make the most of, of that space. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Just an analogy, Patrick. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he made partialism up. I'm pretty sure he yeah. made it up because <laughs> I, I don't remember Voltron. Good, <laughs> all right, let's look at the flip side then and talk about heresy then. Picture there is a guy named Alistair McGrath. And he says that heresy is a form of Christian belief. Note that. It's a form of Christian belief that more by accident than design, ultimately ends up subverting, destabilizing, or even destroying the core of Christian faith. So notice this, that he says that heresy is a form of Christian belief, okay? So it's not somebody who starts out, it's not from, um, heresy doesn't arise from utter opponents of the faith, right? There aren't atheists who are formulating heresies and trying to make it popular. Heresies start from within. You know, just like that, the old movies used to have. The call is coming from within the house. When it comes to heresy, the call is always coming from within the household of God. That's where it starts. And then he also points out this. More by accident than design. <laughs> And again, showing my age, but I remember when I was a kid, there used to be these PSAs on, during the Saturday morning cartoons so they could brainstorm us effectively, brain, brainwash us effectively, where there was the, the guy who was saying, you know, nobody ever says, I want to be a junkie when I grow up. Remember those? Nobody sets out to be a junkie. Likewise, he's saying, nobody sets out to be a heretic. Like, let's see how I can just run afoul of what the church actually teaches. It's more by accident than by design and for that reason too we're going to do our best as we're going through these heresies we're not just going to dunk on all these heretics and say those guys are so patently and obviously idiotic why didn't they know any better but we're going to try to to see where they're coming from to understand what they're saying and what was the truth that they were trying to convey and that (laughs) invariably they go too far with it they miss the mark but we're going to have a little bit of sympathy You know, not too much sympathy, but more sympathy probably than Dante, who in Dante's Inferno, he has the the heretics down in, I think, the fifth or the sixth circle of hell, and they're buried in piles of their own excrement, okay? (laughs) Okay. it's just, you know, Dante, That's how they roll in the Middle Ages, right? Uh, we're we're going to try to show a little bit more sympathy while at the same time recognizing that just as, as Michael shared, as Paul says in Galatians, that those who are te- teaching and proclaiming another gospel then be accursed. He's got hard words for it too. So where those heresies are really leading us astray, we need to call it for what it is and recognize the importance, the essential nature of being orthodox. Uh, Here's a, another definition of a heretic from Ben Quash, who says a heretic is a baptized person who obstinately denies or doubts a truth with which the, ter- with the church teaches must be believed because it is part of the one divinely revealed in Catholic Christian faith. So again, somebody from within who is running counter to what the church believes. All right. So I shared with you two characteristics, not just the only characteristics, but two Um, remarkable things about orthodoxy. I want to share the same when it comes to heresy. So, one is that it over or under emphasizes one part of God's truth. right? That heresy is going to find a tree that it really likes and it's going to cling on to that tree and miss the larger forest of God's truth. This is, we'll see it again and again when it comes to these heresies. They'll find one thing, they'll get, you know, to, to change it. There'll be a dog that gets one bone that it just wants to really stick on to, missing the fact that there's a whole wider vastness to, to God's truth. Okay, So it's characteristic of heresies. And I say over or under, because in many cases it's going to be over-emphasizing one piece of it. But another, I, I guess just the flip side of that is there's going to be parts... Oh,
1: <laughs>
0: uh, there's going to be other parts that um, it, uh, for the same reason, does not emphasize. Uh, remind me later, would you? Okay. <laughs> Dump things. Uh, <laughs> then All right, good. That's about the best I can go for there. All right, and then the flip side of the other thing, uh, characteristic we said of orthodoxy, heresy, We'll avoid that paradox and mystery. All right? It's going to cut the Gordian knot. It's going to say, you know what? How can we just cut right through this and uh, just make things, <clears throat> get rid of all of the, that messy mystery, those problematic paradoxes. Just say, surely it has to be one or the other. right? God is a God of black and white. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. True. But then we take that into the next stage and say, and so everything else has to be black and white also and we're just going to get rid of the the messy middle muddle. That's where it gets a little bit more dangerous. Yes, Bob.
1: And I think that's from a graph statement of accident is real mm-hmm. because a lot of heretics, if you will, earnest Christians, and they bump into a paradox and yeah. they want with all their heart to resolve it. Right. And they finally fall on one side, but but they think they think we should be able to or should be responsible to. Yes. And, and so they go down that road not realizing that a lot of this is just beyond human capacity.
0: Yeah, so much of this is, is beyond human capacity. We're just not able to, we're not able to, to get it into our small brains. So any questions so far then about just the defining orthodoxy and, and heresy? Yeah, Jake. Consider uh, transubstantiation a heresy? Oh, good question. Okay, so then right after some of them. So um, Jake asked, so do we consider transubstantiation a heresy? And uh, transubstantiation is the, the, the teaching within the Roman Catholic Church. It's a specific theory about how Jesus is present in the, the <coughs> supper with the, with the bread and wine. Okay, um, So it's a, a way, what they, they use categories from Aristotle old Greek philosopher to explain how it is I can put it crassly, they try to pop the hood alright, I'm using this for you Jake Um, (laughs) (laughs) they they try to pop the hood on the Lord's Supper and say, well what are the mechanics here, how is it that Jesus is present? And as Lutherans we don't subscribe to transubstantiation nor to, as we're sometimes branded, consubstantiation Uh, you want it inside baseball, we're going inside baseball guys (laughs) What distinguishes Lutherans goes right along with this. It's not that we, we're going to say how Jesus is present, but we're going to profess by faith that he is there. And so when we learn in the catechism you know, that Jesus is, is present in, with, and under the bread and wine, is that an invitation for you and me to, to take the, the host of the Lord's Supper and look under and with <laughs> and in? No, it's Luther's way of saying his circumlocution, if you will, um, to, to get at the idea like we don't know how he's present but we believe that he is. Why? Because he said so. Okay. How? I don't know. But that's not for us to, to know. Now, that's a long way of saying, do we believe that it's a heresy? No. Not, not a heresy in the sense that it's beyond the pale of orthodoxy but I think we would probably brand it as a, a heterodox position. So there's another category of heterodox meaning other than orthodox. Okay? So Uh, But uh, a text we're going to look at in a minute will help us to clarify that, too. Yeah, Christine. So, go back to Alistair McGrath's point about destabilizing and destroying the corporation. Yeah. Having all these different denominations say this is right, this is right, this is right. And you have non-Christians looking at it going, well, it can't all be right. Yeah. We're destabilizing because we can't agree. Wow. So, yeah, Christine's going right for it, too. (laughs) That within... the the body of Christ with all these different denominations. And when Christians are saying different things, doesn't that destabilize it too? And just briefly, I think this is an important point. I think that it can and it does. But a flip side of that is that I also believe that within the the body of Christ, that where uh, we are orthodox, where we uphold our orthodoxy, different denominations, if you think of denominations almost as different members of the body, Okay, uses the the metaphor of the body. Different denominations are able to accent and emphasize different aspects of God's truth better than others, right? Mm -hmm. And that's an area that we can be grateful. We can be grateful that there are other church bodies. I heard somebody say recently, Bob, uh, that the LCMS is like the kidney of the body of Christ. But this is a great, because the, the LCMS traditionally, our denomination, has been very zealous and passionate about keeping our doctrine pure, right? Keeping things pure. Uh, I have other things I could say using that metaphor, but I'm not going to do it. Um, but I think we, to, to go with that, I think that other branches of the body of Christ, or other members, other denominations, emphasize other things that we also need. Now, they have weaknesses, and there's things that we want to push back on. For instance, you know, uh, think of of Baptists. Baptists um, traditionally have a low view of the Lord's Supper. They they would say, no, we can't. You know, the, the flip side of that transubstantiation is we we can't explain how he could be present, and therefore, ergo, he must not be. I say, wait a second, no, you're, you're missing the point here. He has said it; we trust his word. And likewise, other uh, branches of the body of Christ, other members. I think need to push back on us Lutherans plenty too. We're really strong on justification, our forgiveness by grace. There's things that we're weak on. I know, guys. I, here I am. I'm going to sound like a heretic up here. Guess what? Lutherans don't get everything 100% right. There. I said it. I know. I know. Just 99.5%. But to your point, Christine, can that destabilize? It can. And that's why we need to find ways... Um, to profess to major in the majors, right? And to the extent that we're able, not allow those minors. I've quoted this before from a a historic uh, theologian named Ephraim Radner. He says, what distinguishes Christians isn't that we never disagree, but how we disagree. He says, what distinguishes Christians, or what ought to distinguish Christians, isn't that we never disagree, but how we disagree. So that when we have disagreements within the body of Christ, we're able to do so amicably in love without immediately throwing everybody out. Right? So, whew, all right, good. You guys are giving me some good ones right off the bat here. All right, David, then Michael. Go ahead.
1: Well, just uh, to kind of piggyback on what Christine said, with that destabilization, the appearance to the unchurched is... That hey, Christianity is crazy because nobody agrees. Yeah, I mean it it gives a bad image when you're trying to bring people to Christ. Sure. So yeah, and and that could even play into what Leslie was talking about with the hypocrisy here as well. So I mean, there's a whole.
0: It's a whole. It's a whole can of worms. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I want to play point-counterpoint on so much of this because you're right that when we become too uh, punctilious, when we get too uh, just focused on finer points of, of doctrine and we can give that impression we're re- and we're ready to just you know fight everybody, on the one side, it can give a bad witness at times. I don't disagree with that. The counterpoint to that, um, and G.K. Chesterton makes this point in his book, Orthodoxy, says, listen, when you are balancing two worlds together, heaven and earth, and trying to keep it in this perfect counterpoise, then he says, in that case, an inch can be all the difference. right? And this is why we also take this stuff so deadly seriously. Mm -hmm. There's this temptation for Christians recognizing rightly that when there's too much infighting and acrimony that it can be off-putting, to put it mildly, a poor witness to the outsiders. They'll take that and they'll say, so the solution is, Just don't take doctrine so seriously, right? Mm -hmm. And just brush aside what we believe and be willing to go with, you know, be loosey-goosey about it. Is that the solution? Is that going to get us where we want to go? No. Then you end up just sliding in slippery slopes of heresy and worse. When we have souls at stake, it matters what we believe and what we profess. But is it possible, is it possible to hold to that and to confess it in a way that is winsome and compassionate and loving even as it is unmoving and, and says, like our brother Luther did, here I stand, I can do no other. Is it possible to live there? Probably not. But that's what we're going to try for, folks. <laughs> right? That's what we're trying for. That's what we're aiming for. And the closer we get to that, I think the more faithful witness we do give to a watching world. Okay. Yeah, Michael.
1: Um, it was stated earlier that heresy generally comes from within the church. Um... Just want to get your take on if you go back from a historical standpoint to about 1850, there were ideas that were postulated in that time period. About like end times type stuff. Uh, all kinds of stuff. You got uh, Westcott-Hort's critical text. You got uh, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, communism, yeah. relativism. All occurred in that sense. that.
0: Period. Yeah, it was so, kind of a breeding ground. So
1: it really wasn't. Those ideas weren't wholeheartedly accepted at the point at which they were postulated. None of them were. And it wasn't until about I don't know 1940-ish, turn of the century where academia began to accept some of these ideas as valid ideas, and then ultimately, um, academia, with its clout, began to impress upon the church these ideas that were unorthodox, and then the church began to adopt um, unorthodox positions that were not new ideas, they were actually old ideas, and then the church now finds itself, I'm talking church in the broader sense, in the more... um, modern way, I sure. guess to say, yeah. and then so we've abandoned it, so from that perspective I perceive heresy by and large coming in great part from academia, not primarily from the internal structure of the believing community study. <clears throat>
0: so, okay, uh, this is this is good. So what Michael's saying, if I can kind of summarize what you're saying, is that, you know, I said that heresy, and reflecting on Alistair McGrath's definition, heresy historically has come up from within the church. Michael's saying, you know what, we've had just even within the last couple hundred years, there all kinds of examples, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, very American uh, forms of, of heresy that have sprung up. Um, but he's saying that the, now these are um, through, coming through academia and so forth. Church, the church has come to accept some of these. And what I would, where I would um, just a, l- a little bit rephrase what you said is that the heresy still comes up from within the church, but definitionally... So now, we're, if we start to take on the definitions of the world, whether it be academia or just the culture at large, which says, you well, know, what's the difference? Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, like, you guys all have, you know, you look, like a, you look like a duck, you quack like a duck, you must be a duck, right? You get together in a building, you drink bad coffee, you must be, you know, must all be Christians. Actually, our coffee's pretty good. I don't, I don't want to get any emails this week about our coffee. Thank you to all of our volunteers who, who put it. It's a dangerous thing being a pastor, right?
1: <laughs>
0: you know, I, I could spot all kinds of heresy, but if I start criticizing the coffee, that's where it's going. <laughs> no. Not you guys. Um, so that's where I would just say, yeah, you're right. When we start taking the definition where we're like, well, other people are telling us we should just accept Mormonism as you know, part of, of Christianity and we allow it to fold in and it starts to change our self-definition and understanding of, of orthodoxy. Yeah, that leads us astray. But it, still, it was coming up. Joseph, Joseph Smith, these guys, they were trying to, I mean, he calls himself the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, right? He's trying to put himself in that tradition of Orthodox Christianity. He just got off base. Yeah, good. Okay, Hans, go ahead.
1: Um, to your baseball analogy. Yes, good. You're, you're saying that uh, it comes from within the church is these heresies are like people standing on that foul line and oh. are, are ready to fall over or see both sides? Sure.
0: Yeah, I think that's a way of thinking about it. Hans is saying, you know, with these heresies, to use that baseball analogy, are they standing on the, on the foul line and they run afoul of the church, <clears throat> if you will? Oh. Thank you. Um, yes, but here's the thing. In many cases, we'll see, These are guys who were not on the margins of the church by any means. Mm -hmm. These are folks who were heavy hitters, right? These were guys who were looked to to be um, pillars and leaders. And so they weren't, you know, the 25th man, the guy who's got the splinters in his behind on the bench. These are guys who were like the all-star first baseman. And then they start saying things and people are like, well, wait a second, is is that true or not? And that's when you start to get the bench-clearing brawls. And now I'm just pushing the metaphor too far. But um, yeah, that's good.
1: So shortstop through the air. To the the shortstop through the
0: air. And he tried to dig it out. And we'll just go all day with baseball. But all right, I've got a few more things I want to share with you while we've got just a, a few minutes. Are heresies and heretics necessary? Ooh, there's a loaded question. To use another analogy. Um, and this is a a biblical one, so within the scriptures itself and then in the tradition, um, doctrine will be spoken of as the body of doctrine. And as our confession of faith that it's not just um, helpful um, theoretically to understand the right ideas, but that it's actually healthy to believe God's truth. So then from that schema, what do heresies kind of do? Heresies, just like in our body, you have an immune system, right? And how does the immune system work? Immune system works while you've got, it it attacks these foreign agents, right? And it works to, if there's something that um, comes at it and uh, wants to undermine the the health of the body, the immune system goes into action. So likewise, uh, the immune system of the body and the, the teaching of the church has been activated through the ages Precisely by these these, um, agents of the body that would would corrupt it, would cause it to go to an unhealthy place. And so, in a sense, we can be as healthy or as robust in the faith apart from those heresies, because they've helped the church through the ages to define what it believes, to clarify its confession of faith. This is hinted at already in uh, the scriptures, in 1 Corinthians. Paul says, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions. And the Greek word there is heresies, heresies, among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, you could read that, you could hear that, and think, okay, so this could take us down a whole other rabbit trail. Like, wait a second, if it's necessary, can you still blame the heretics? Because are they just kind of puppets in God's will, and they couldn't do anything about it? I'm not going there, or at least I'm not going there right now, not today. Yeah, but suffice it to say that heresies, in their own way, God has used them in order to bolster and build up the church. Through the ages, he has helped the church to grow and to become stronger as a result of these heresies and these, these false teachings. And that, to me, is undeniable. Yeah, Esther. I think a
1: better way to say it is... Uh, heresies are inevitable. Yeah, that's definitely Not necessary, the case. But inevitable. Sure.
0: So uh, uh, Esther says heresies are inevitable, even more so than necessary. Yeah, that's good. Hey, Bob. But
1: the role they play is to assist the church in understanding and, if you will, stating the truth more clearly.
0: Yes. The role that they play is helping the church mm-hmm. understand and to state the truth more clearly. And to reiterate a point that we'll make again and again throughout this study, why does it matter that the church states the truth more clearly? This is the question that too often doesn't get asked, especially, I would say, within our Lutheran circles, to go back to that, that weakness that we tend to have, is that we say, well, that's, just, that's an end in itself, <coughs> stating the truth more clearly. And I agree that that in itself is a goal worth aspiring to. But to go one step further, why does it matter That we state the truth more clearly. Or if I can use another analogy for my English teachers. Um, There's all kinds of rules in grammar. And there's plenty of people from age to age who are like, why do we have all these dumb rules? We can speak gooder however we want, right? (laughs) What's the point of the grammatical rules and teachings and so forth? Jan, I'll put you on the spot. Why does that matter?
1: Better understanding of what someone
0: has to say. Better understanding of what someone has to say. Clarity. Clarity, because communication, grammar is about language, and language is about communication, and communication is about connection. If we can't speak, if we can't be understood, if we can't be clear to one another, then we can't connect with each other, and we all live isolated, sad lives, and we die alone. Okay, How's that to ramp it up? <laughs> When it comes to the truth and the teachings of God, doctrine and what we profess is ultimately about clarifying that communication between the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to you and me. If we can't hear what he's saying, if we can't perceive the truth of what he is conveying and communicating to us, then we die alone and sad and separated from him. He wants to connect his fatherly heart to your heart and mine. And that's why it matters that we confess this rightly, that we speak clearly when we talk about the truths of God because ultimately lives and souls are at stake, yours and mine and those who don't yet know. That's why it matters that we speak clearly, that we speak in an orthodox way. And that's a good place for us to stop today. Uh, we're, I'm going to continue along this line next week, um, continuing the case for why orthodoxy matters. And if we have time, we'll get into our first heresy. But I'm excited for you guys to be here. Thank you for being a part of this, and uh, we'll see you next week. God bless.